Want to stand with Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Get her iconic descent collar in the form of a pin, necklace, or earrings. Descent Pins donates 50% of profits to causes you love, like the Bronx Freedom Fund and Planned Parenthood. Take 20% off today with code HARPERS at DescentPins.com. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. The further we get from the Supreme Court's decision on Roe v. Wade, the less the right to an abortion seems secure. That peril has come into sharp focus over the past few weeks when seven states, Ohio, Missouri, Kentucky, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, and Utah, passed bills to restrict abortion to much earlier stages of pregnancy. In Arkansas, a bill was passed that banned the procedure outright. Only some of these bans include exceptions to protect the health of the pregnant person, or in the case of rape or incest, considerations that even the most strident anti-abortion activists used to allow for. In this episode, I spoke with three women who could help put this cascade of legislation into perspective. Bridget Amiri, a deputy director of the ACLU's Reproductive Freedom Project, Madeline Schwartz, a Harper's Magazine contributor who has conducted interviews with former members of the Abortion Counseling Service of Women's Liberation, later known as Jane, a pre-Row Reproductive Health Center in Chicago, and Rachel Nolan, a journalist and a postdoctoral fellow at the Columbia Society of Fellows, who wrote about El Salvador's complete ban on abortion for the October 2017 issue. Here's our conversation. I wanted to start off by talking about why this is happening now, because so much of the current media narrative is that all of these states have been emboldened by Trump or or the appointment of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. But I find that kind of a limited understanding of what's happening, because this seems like a larger failure of the Democratic Party to put money into and win down ticket races around the country. You know, obviously, there are three branches of the American government. And when you sort of ignore one of those things, like, and this is something that Donna Brazil talked about when she resigned from the DNC, that there was this culture of debt that was started during the Obama years. This isn't the first time this is happening. These aren't the first instances of so-called heartbeat bills. Again, that, that's my interpretation of why this is happening now. But I mean, why, would, why do you feel like this is happening now? So this is actually a culmination of a decades-long strategy by the anti-abortion movement, and they are very well organized, and they put out playbooks of different abortion restrictions that they want state legislatures to pass. And so when you look at the map of the state legislatures that are controlled by anti-abortion politicians and then the governors in those states that are anti-abortion and that will sign anti-abortion restrictions, we've seen decades of abortion restrictions being passed at the state level and being signed by the governor, many of which we can challenge and be successful in court, uh, but some of which we can't. And so those restrictions have piled on top of each other and have pushed abortion out of reach for many people, have closed abortion clinic doors in many states. And we are really seeing the true colors of the anti-abortion movement now with uh, the abortion bans in six states. 
because this is really what they've wanted to do all along. They've been passing restrictions at the margin, claiming that they're doing it to protect women's health, but really what they've wanted to do all along is ban abortion, and we're really seeing that now with all of these abortion bans. Can we talk a bit about the history, you know, touch on some of those restrictions? Because in the states that just passed Georgia, Kentucky, Missouri, Mississippi, Ohio, in Missouri, Kentucky, and Mississippi, there was only one clinic in each of those states in 2016, which means that, like you said, there's there's like this history of restriction, certainly, but it's it takes many forms. So could you uh, elaborate on other cases that might be in the pipeline that might get to the Supreme Court before these do? Yeah, absolutely. So a couple of things. I mean, since Roe versus Wade was decided in 1973, establishing the federal constitutional right to abortion, the other side has been trying to restrict access to abortion at the federal level and also at the state level. So very early on after Roe versus Wade was decided, um, the Hyde Amendment was passed at the federal level, which prohibits uh, any um, federal insurance program like Medicaid from covering abortion for low-income people. And that right there pushed abortion care out of reach um, for for many people, including some of the most marginalized people in our country. And the author of that bill said, I would like to make abortion a thing of the past for everybody, but the, the this is the only vehicle to do this for poor, is for poor women. And that really set off, I think, a wave of abortion restrictions over the course of, of decades, as we've talked about. And I think Kentucky is a perfect case study, and also I'll talk about Kentucky just a little bit. Right after Roe versus, Roe versus Wade was decided in 1973, there were approximately 26 places where you could get an abortion in Kentucky. And today there is one, and it's EMW Women's Surgical Center, and we have the great privilege of representing them in court. Uh, We have four lawsuits pending against Kentucky right now, trying to restrict access to abortion and close the last clinic's doors. And really what we've seen is Governor Bevin, once he took office about three years ago, was on a mission to close abortion clinics. There were three places where you could get an abortion when he took office, and now there's only one because of his efforts. Uh, He has um, sued the other clinics to get them to stop providing abortions and has been successful for now. And we have fended off any attempts to do the same with EMW Women's Surgical Center in Louisville. So Kentucky has passed a ban on abortion starting at six weeks in pregnancy. We've blocked it by the courts. But they also have a law in the books that say that abortion providers must have a written transfer agreement with a local hospital. And EMW had this written transfer agreement for years. And when Governor Bevin was elected, he looked at it and said, I think this is not in compliance with the law because it's signed by the head of the OBGYN department at the hospital rather than the CEO of the hospital. And if you don't fix it, we're closing your clinic in 10 days. Well, needless to say, signing that transfer agreement with an abortion clinic is politically fraught in Louisville, and the CEO refused to sign that agreement. And we had to go to court to block Governor Bevin from shutting down EMW for that reason. But we're on appeal. And if this case were to reach the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court found that Uh, Governor Bevin was right that you have to have a transfer agreement with a a hospital and it has to be signed by the the person that the governor says has to sign it, that could eliminate access to abortion in Kentucky. You don't even need a ban to ban abortions in Kentucky. There are these other very 
nuanced ways that the other side has been trying to do that for years. And those cases are all in the pipeline. And so that's just an example of this like very um, stark contrast between an outright ban on abortion and a way of eliminating access to abortion that might not necessarily capture people's attention as much, um, but both things could eliminate abortion in Kentucky. It's important to add to um, to Bridget's point, and, and just to say that even when these bans aren't successful, they they contribute to a climate of fear and disinformation for the women who need to get abortions. And and one of the things that's been happening with the with the introduction of all of these bans is that women in the states that these bans are being introduced in don't know are the clinics still open, can they still get the services they need, and so even if the bans are are not successful some women may not get the services they need um, because they don't realize exactly what's happening at the law. Yeah. And and that's by design, right? And Madeline, that's such a good point and something that we should reiterate that abortion is legal in all 50 states now. And none of the restrictions, none of the, these bans on um, have taken effect or have been blocked by the courts. Um, and we will be going to court for, for them to, to make sure, or our sister organizations will, to, to block them. Uh, but there is tremendous confusion. Our client in Ohio had told us that every third caller approximately would call and say, is, is abortion still legal? Can I still make an appointment? And that confusion is deliberate. The other side wants that result. And so it's a culmination of decades-long abortion restrictions passed at the legislative level and then passing these bans that will confuse people seeking abortion and will also shame and stigmatize people who are seeking abortions and people who are providing abortions. Why heartbeat? Why the choice of this very uh, evocative word, let's say, like for for the for naming this legislation and making and making this sort of imaginary dividing line? The language of heartbeat, I think, goes to the very heart of the strategy that the anti-abortion movement has been pushing for because it shows a desire to to represent the fetus as a as a person, a person who would be equal um, in, in their rights as a woman. And, you know, the, the fact is fetal heartbeat is, is actually a misnomer because at six weeks, there isn't a fetus yet. Most doctors say that, that we have a fetus starting from the 11th week, but embryonic heartbeat doesn't really sound quite the same way. And also, I mean, like, what is being described as a heartbeat is a bit of a stretch because these are electrical si- signals that are being interpreted as where if the embryo becomes a fetus, becomes is born as a baby, then that is the area that will be a heart. Like it's very, it's like very, all the science, quote unquote science around this is very tenuous, very tenuous at best. Yeah. And I think it goes to show, you know, in a lot of the cases, these legislators aren't actually interested in what happens during a pregnancy, either to the woman or to the fetus, but in pushing a certain agenda and that there's such a disconnect between the way they describe what's happening and what actually happens really goes to show that sometimes it's not a question of women's health at all. Yeah, absolutely. And I and I also think that, you know, you're talking about like an embryo or a fetus being on equal fo- footing as a woman in terms of personhood. I mean, for me, it almost seems more like they are better than the woman because they have not yet sinned. 
they don't exist. They have all of their life ahead of them, supposedly, to make the right choice. And so a woman who needs an abortion, well, clearly she made the wrong choice. She has to pay for her sins. And so why should she, you know, like, why should she punish this innocent? Like, it's very, it's a very self-perpetuating ideology if you see an embryo, a fetus, as a baby. Like, there's no way, there's, I don't think always um, the pro-choice side has a way to address that. There's no question that the other side has done a really coordinated and strategic job of coming up with the language and terminology and having the discipline to use it over and over again and to draft uh, model legislation and push it uh, copycat all around the country. Uh, And they have done this time and again with so many different other types of restrictions. I think that, you know, one of the things, though, that Oh, one thing we can talk about is kind of what, what these bans actually do when they, when they ban abortion at six weeks in pregnancy. That's um, six weeks in pregnancy as dated from the woman's last menstrual period. So it's two weeks after missed period is when these would ban abortions. Most people don't even know they're pregnant at that point. They also may have irregular periods. And it's also two weeks not just to decide to have an abortion, but to find the clinic, uh, make an appointment, uh, make take time off from work, arrange for child care. Uh, most people who have abortions um, have uh, children already and raise money for the abortion itself. And so on top of all of the other restrictions that exist in a state like Kentucky, a mandatory 24-hour waiting period, parental involvement that's required, or a court order um, if you can't get your um, parents involved in your abortion decision, all of these restrictions then add up so much more. Really, it's just an outright ban on abortion, even in the states that are uh, bans at abortion starting at six weeks in pregnancy. So maybe we could also just quickly talk about, because we keep bringing up Roe versus Wade, and I and I think even people who are very glad that the right to an abortion was established with this case, I don't always know that people understand how that decision was reached. As I understand it, the large part of the decision was that a woman's right to privacy extends to her fetus. So worst case scenario, if this is overturned, we'd have an idea what that would mean for abortion. Would that, in fact, impact other privacy laws or what could be the possible fallout of that? Yeah, so just going back a little bit, um, Roe versus Wade built on other Supreme Court precedent involving privacy and very intimate personal decision making like uh, the right to use contraception as a married person first in Griswold versus Connecticut, and later that right was extended to uh, single people um, in in Eisenstadt versus Baird before Roe. So Roe versus Wade built on this right to privacy in other intimate decision making about people's reproductive lives, and so. There is a deep concern that a decision that could overturn Roe versus Wade could have impact on those privacy decisions. Obviously, those privacy decisions decisions since Roe have been used um, involving um, same-sex marriages and um, to overturn bans on sodomy. There are a lot of interrelated issues um, related to the right to privacy in the Supreme Court uh, use of, of the, the right to privacy in certain contexts. If Roe versus Wade is undermined or overruled, what it means is that there will be no federal constitutional right to abortion, and states may ban abortion if they so choose. And many states will not. Many states will. 
And the reproductive rights and justice movement will uh, need to build an infrastructure to make sure that people can get access to abortion if the state that they're living in um, has banned an abortion and that those discussions have been underway and is something that people are planning for. They're planning for the worst. Hopefully we don't get there, but that is uh, certainly something that everyone is talking about now. And Madeline, you did this project a few years ago. I would love to hear you talk about it where you were interviewing these women who worked for Jane, which was a reproductive uh, healthcare center in Chicago that was started before Roe versus Wade. Could you talk a bit about the culture that existed before Roe versus Wade and then also how you started that project, what it entailed, et cetera? Yeah, sure. So um, a few years ago, I interviewed, as you say, women who had been members of Jane, which um, started in 1965 in Chicago initially as an abortion referral service. So if a woman was pregnant, she could call Jane, who was in reality a woman named Heather Booth, and get a referral to a doctor who would be able to help her. And as the years went on, it it gradually expanded into a group of activists, all women who provided the abortions themselves in the Chicago area. When Jane began, deaths from abortion were extremely common, and abortions were done in an atmosphere of secrecy and danger. As many of the Janes told me, a number of the abortionists in Chicago, almost all of them, were controlled by the mob because, like drugs or weapons or other illegal things, the mob likes to go where, um, likes to take control of where the state won't go. And women were often blindfolded and were generally made to feel that their lives were in danger and that they had done something horribly wrong. So um, how the Janes worked is they were all volunteers. And so if you were interested in volunteering, you would start out counseling. If a woman was pregnant, she would come to a Jane and she would ask for advice and, and they would walk the woman through the process. And and as the volunteers, the Janes became more involved in the organization, they would then learn how to do the abortions themselves and and perform them. What had happened was that they originally were working with one doctor who was very well respected and had been involved in the civil rights movement, and he died. And the doctor who they had to replace him, it turned out, wasn't a doctor at all. And when the Janes realized that that the man that they had been tr- trusting to do this didn't have a medical license, they figured, well, if he can do it, so can we. And they got taught and taught themselves how to do the procedure and did so uh, without incident. Were the, were the Janes ever in contact with other similar organizations, or was it just very much like... Well, some of them had um, connections to the civil rights movement or had been active in SNCC, but so far as I know, they were a fairly self-contained organization based in Chicago. What happened was a few years into their work, uh, abortion was made legal in New York State. So that was, I think, in 1970, a few years before Roe. And what several of the Janes said to me was that the nature of the work really changed at that moment because when they had started out, a number of the women who had come to them were college students or wealthy women from Chicago. When abortion was made legal in New York, all of those women were able to go to New York and the women who came to them were often poor women who didn't have the money to travel. And when you were doing this project, what did you feel like the state of abortion rights were? What generated your interest in it in the first place? 
Well, I conducted these interviews shortly after the 2016 election, and it was part of an ongoing question of, you know, what can individuals do in a situation where it, it seems like the government is very much against them and trying to deny every sort of freedom. And, and one of the things that was really heartening about the Janes was that they, they talked about when you do activism of a certain kind, trying to change laws that can take a very long time. And, and you know, starting out that you might not be successful and that all you can really do is push the conversation. And here they were really changing women's lives and very actively involved and and, and able to see the work that they did on all levels, not only providing the abortions, of course, but even making it a comfortable environment for a woman, providing counseling for women who were frightened and scared. And these were really tangible things that that women who were, for the most part, quite young, didn't have a legal or medical background, were really able to do just by coming together and, and deciding that they were going to do it. Do you envision something like this worst case scenario in states where there are these unofficial bans, right, where there are these incredible barriers to getting service, do you feel like these networks will reemerge or will it just sort of be like unsafe, I'm ordering pills off the internet to start a miscarriage? Well, there, there already are networks that exist in a number of states and also transnationally, if we think of, of organizations like Women on Web, which which help women with uh, medical abortions. So that's when you take a pill. And and those organizations obviously are extremely active and, and have to be more and more active. Unfortunately, I don't think we can rely on a group of, of individuals, however committed, to replace an entire medical system that, that may be dismantled. One thing that's also interesting about, about the Janes and the time that they were working with is obviously abortion was illegal and what they were doing was was illegal but there was an atmosphere of of liberalization and at the time you know in the early 70s at the time of Roe versus Wade you know most Americans thought that abortion was a decision that a woman should make with her doctor and there was a sense that that it could eventually become legal even when a number of Janes were arrested in 1972 and even while they were waiting for their hearing, they knew that Roe had reached the Supreme Court and that that, that decision would affect their own, their own outcomes. And anyone working today on these same issues has to know that public opinion and the law is really going in the opposite direction, which, which is a very different environment to, to do this kind of work. Rachel, Madeline was talking about how in countries that don't have abortion rights, there are international networks that can help pick up the slack or can help women with medical abortions. Um, You wrote a piece a couple of years ago about El Salvador, and that is a country that women who either miscarry or have an abortion are treated as having committed homicide. And so that means that women are reported by their doctors if they have a miscarriage, and the burden of proof is on them. So can you talk a bit about that environment and, yeah what that culture um, is like? 
Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, the reason that El Salvador is such a disturbing example of where we could go in the United States is that it had fewer restrictions on abortion in the 1990s. So El Salvador really shows that um, there's no law of progress that guarantees forward motion on reproductive rights. We can take a step back. And once a country like El Salvador does or a country like the U.S. does, it's very hard to reclaim rights that were available even to a previous generation or half generation before of women. So the situation in El Salvador um, starting in the 1990s was that a fertilized egg was legally a person and abortion was criminalized with 10 to 20 year prison sentences. However, public prosecutors in El Salvador commonly, as you mentioned, Violet, up the sentence to aggravated homicide, which can carry 30 to 50 years in prison. So some women who either have been suspected of aborting or have been suspected of miscarrying even in some cases have received prison sentences of up to 30 years. So why why talk about El Salvador in particular? Of course, there are many other countries around the world that have either total or full abortion bans. In El Salvador, there's a total abortion ban and it is alone, however, like like a handful of um, countries in the world, uh, many of which are in Latin America. El Salvador is alone, however, in having a legal requirement for doctors to report suspected miscarriages or abortions. They, they consider them all in the same category. The word in Spanish is aborto espontaneo, spontaneous abortion. So doctors are legally required to report suspicious women who come to hospitals to the police. This, of course, violates doctor-client privilege. However, I spoke to many doctors in El Salvador reporting this piece in 2016 who felt personally against the abortion ban, but were concerned about the, their professional lives, their ability to remain doctors and retain their permits and licenses to be doctors if they found a woman under what are considered suspicious circumstances in El Salvador in the hospital and didn't report that woman to the police. Now. Madeline mentioned women on waves and the increasing availability of pill-based abortions around the world. This is, of course, a wonderful development for reproductive rights globally, and I want to acknowledge that. However, because of the way that pill-based abortions look to doctors who are seeing it on the other side, it's actually very hard to distinguish abortions from miscarriage. And so part of what's muddied the issues in El Salvador is that a doctor um, who finds a pill, for example, partially dissolved in a woman's vagina, considers that medical um, view to literally be a crime scene that they have to report to the police. And I just wanted to highlight this to say that part of the reason that I wanted to report this story back in 2016, I was living in Guatemala, I was working on something else, and it was during the presidential campaign, and Trump publicly said in this country that if Roe v. Wade were overturned, that women should be punished. And that reminded me immediately of, of the situation in El Salvador, which I had been made aware of by some excellent reporting in The Guardian by Nina Lacani and others. So that was what really drew my attention to, to go to El Salvador and attend some of these trials. It is very disturbing to go to a trial in a courtroom and hear a public defender arguing on behalf of a fetus. I never thought I would experience that in my life. Can you actually talk about what that is like? Because it just, and, and as you note in the story, a lot of the, as in many countries in this country, there's kind of this two-tiered system where if you're a wealthy woman, there's a private hospital you can go to. And if you are a poor woman, you're on trial. You might be going to jail. You might be going to the most overcrowded jails in the world. So what, what do these trials look like? And what is, is and is not considered evidence? 
Sure. When abortion is criminalized, it becomes a poor woman's crime. This is not, I'm not talking about Salvadoran women who have resources to go to private clinics where abortions are regularly performed, despite the fact that they're illegal. And I spoke to a gynecologist who provides that service in San Salvador, and she knows that only wealthy women are going to come to her abortion, not just because they're the ones who can afford the service, but because they're the ones who have the contacts to know safely that that this gynecologist is providing that service. So the trials themselves generally feature a woman who is poor. El Salvador is one of the poorest countries in the Western Hemisphere. They tend to be women who live in rural areas who either miscarry or abort in circumstances that are outside of the reach of medical systems. In many cases, there might be a local health center, but the hospitals tend to be hours away on extremely rutted roads. So these are not women who have access to quality prenatal care, to put it mildly. And they're women who are criminalized by the state very quickly. And so when you go to one of these trials, there's, um, as Jocelyn Viterna, who's a sociologist at Harvard, has shown with a much more rigorous and extensive study, I only went to... um, I attended several trials, but Jocelyn has been attending these trials in San Salvador for a long time. So along with her colleagues who are Salvadoran lawyers, she's shown that there's a real legal predisposition to assume guilt. And so women are assumed to be guilty and have to prove their innocence. The problem is that the crime scene, as I mentioned, is a fleeting medical moment, and it falls into a he said, she said situation of the doctor saying, I'm not sure what I saw, but it seemed suspicious. And the woman who often is from a rural area, may not be literate in every case, is forced to argue her corner, often with the help of public defenders who can't even remember their names, as in many countries, public defenders are overloaded with cases, not that that is an excuse, but the level of the quality of public defense in El Salvador is abysmal. And so women are really trying to argue with very, through no fault of their own, with very little access to resources that they did not commit a crime. And the only hope for many of them is a lawyer's group called Agrupación Ciudadana, and their international partners, so the Center for Reproductive Rights, there are various international groups that have gotten involved in El Salvador because, of course, El Salvador is a flashpoint for reproductive politics. And so these the, the women's best hope is really hooking up with one of these lawyers uh, locally or internationally who are well-trained to argue these cases. But the decisions have gone every which way. And some of the women who have been accused and convicted of either abortion or aggravated homicide, which again is the can be the 30 to 50 year sentence, some of those women go to jail for 10, 15 years before their, mostly their sentences are overturned because there isn't good evidence that they've committed any crime, even in a legal regime that criminalizes abortion. So what I want to emphasize is, despite the fact that the numbers of women who go to jail for abortion in El Salvador are actually quite low. They tend to hover around the, um, well, it's not low if you consider that it's a person's life, but they tend to hover around the 20 women in jail at a time mark, and the lawyers are constantly taking on new cases. And even as women are released, new women are being prosecuted for the crime of abortion. So while the numbers might be relatively low, I want to emphasize that everyone in that society lives with fear and uncertainty around pregnancy, miscarriage, abortion, and all of these issues. So the knock-on effect is enormous. And with groups like Agrupación, have they been able to gain more traction? Is there any sort of sign that anything could change, given that there are international groups, there is international attention that is like, hey, this is 
kind of bullshit. Like there, this is a bad, uh, this is bad use of our legal system. Yes and no. Unfortunately, there's international attention and funding on both sides. So mm. there is a pro-life um, anti-abortion group in San Salvador, which receives quite a lot of attention, at least. I suspect funding, although I was never able to prove that in the course of reporting in 2016, from a U.S.-based group called Human Life International. And U.S.-based anti-abortion activists have noted that El Salvador is what they call an inspiration. So El Salvador is an inspiration for some of these groups in the U.S. So despite the fact that some of the lawyers that I interviewed who continue to take on these very difficult cases and prosecute them and, and defend them, excuse me, very well, despite the fact that they get attention and there was some discussion in the Salvadoran Congress about changing the law recent, recently, and it's been since crushed. That that hope, which arose about a year ago, has since seemed to fade away for complicated internal political reasons that I, I don't necessarily no, think I need to get into for this audience. Yeah. Um, Despite, despite the fact that there's some hope, uh, no, no political change has occurred yet. And I, I, I find it very discouraging, to say the least, that there is money and, and certainly influence coming in on the anti-abortion side in El Salvador as well. I will say that one of the women that I profiled in my Harper's article, which came out a couple of years ago, Maria Teresa, who was released, has since received asylum in Sweden mm -hmm. because Sweden considers the anti-abortion policies in El Salvador to be to amount to persecution of women, which I would certainly agree with having seen the tail end of the trial. Sure. I want to talk about the role of money and how that influences and kind of shapes this debate, like even even more than like the imaging technology where, you know, a woman in a lot of places that have like soft bands, women are forced to look at an ultrasound, doctor or a nurse says, this is the face, this is this, when really it's ambiguous at best. Like all of this stuff, it's like, if you want to see a baby, you're going to see a baby. And uh, you're, if you don't, you see the inside of a person. Like it's just, it's not um, more than that. There is like this definite influence of people like the DeVoses, the Cokes, whoever is doing TPUSA, his name escapes me now. Like these people, there's this, there's a lot of money involved in this. And that extends to everything from like religious education to marches on Washington to movies like Unplanned, faith-friendly movies that sort of help shape this. So in your respective fields, let's say, has you've encountered that, um, that role of kind of like dark money or um, influence or influence where you kind of know where it is, but you maybe don't, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, so this is really, um, you know, going back into how we got here in the first place. And there's a, a great documentary called Reversing Row uh, that um, has been on Netflix uh, about this history of how we got here. And it really details how certain politicians uh, were not anti-abortion, anti-contraception until a very coordinated movement on the religious right front, often led by Phyllis Schlafly and others, said to politicians, if you want our support, if you want our churches, our mega churches to come out and vote for you, you need to change your position on abortion and contraception. So politicians like Ronald Reagan, George Bush, they were supportive of reproductive rights policies until they were presented with an opportunity to get more votes and get elected by these 
people who opposed abortion and they said, you have to adopt our position if you want our support financially and if you want our votes. And so you really see that uh, change um, in politics where abortion and contraception becomes an issue in elections because of this very well-organized, very well-financed religious right. And Madeline, do you want to talk a bit about that in regards to things like negatively impacting women's health care in this country, like Planned Parenthood, where it takes like four hours to be seen by a medical professional because they're so grossly underfunded and there is so much danger physically to the people who work there. One thing, you know, it's worth remembering or not many people know that the, the, the pro-abortion movement or the movement to legalize abortion didn't start out as part of the feminist movement. It really started out of a public health concern. It was doctors who were saying women are dying and they're not getting the care that they need. Something needs to change. This procedure needs to become legal in order for it to be safe. And it wasn't really until rather late in 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 their in their advocacy that that abortion was taken on by the women's movement. And I think that that has changed a lot of the character of how we view abortion as a women's health issue and not as a health issue. One of the things that this debate has done, as as I think you know, we've we've already mentioned a few times in this conversation, is really make the entire conversation around women's health much more difficult and, and much more dangerous because along with abortion bans also come misinformation about certain forms of contraception and misinformation about how pregnancy works and a general climate of fear around working in women's health that's really dangerous and and ends up with fewer women getting the, the support and the information that they need whether it's crisis pregnancy centers um, that masquerade as abortion clinics or even the lies about IUDs that are said by a number of politicians that that mean that that women might be frightened of using that kind of contraception. In El Salvador, the situation was somewhat different. The reason that the law changed in the 1990s to further criminalize abortion, to take away loopholes for women who had suffered rape, incest, um, or where the pregnancy was going to be a threat to the life of the woman, the reason for that was political rather than financial. El Salvador was coming out of a very brutal civil war in which the U.S. was an instigating actor Mm -hmm. funding the right-wing military government with enormous amounts of money. Um, And so in the 90s, when the, the country was trying to heal after this war had really drawn to a bloody draw of some kinds. The former guerrilla um, faction, the FMLN, became a political party, and they were against criminalizing, fully criminalizing abortion. They publicly said that they didn't support um, these much more aggressively conservative laws. However, in order to reach political compromise with ARENA, the right-wing party, they threw women under the bus. And eventually the political compromise was made at the expense of women's reproductive rights. And and since that time in El Salvador, we have never been able to see any real serious shift to valorizing women's reproductive rights again. And the political truce has, has held somewhat. The final thing I would just like to briefly touch on is just that I'm not going to say all the states, but many of the states in the South that are banning or doing soft bans on abortion, they also have the highest maternal mortality rates in the country. And the U.S. itself has the highest maternal mortality rates 
in the developed world, which is outrageous. So why is this so high here? And why is this something that isn't being focused on more right now? Because abortion is a very, very, very useful mobilization tool. It's a great wedge issue. People are always going to be for it. People are always going to be against it. But maternal mortality is also something that a, a flashpoint and, again, kind of an egregious thing that if we're pretending to care about women's lives, like, come on. So <laughs> One doesn't want to be too aggressive in drawing connections, but a lot of reporting has shown that one of the big reasons for the pretty frightening increase in the rate of maternal mortality in the United States is the way that that resources and attention have been moved from maternal health to, to fetal health. And there's been a huge amount of re- reporting, especially by ProPublica, to show that in a lot of cases, uh, insurance programs will divert far more resources to covering fetal health than, than maternal health. And at hospitals, a lot of the training is about checking up on the fetus and and not paying attention to the blood pressure or um, vital signs of a woman who has recently given birth, which means that when severe cases of things like preeclampsia occur, doctors aren't necessarily ready. Another depressing thing that I would like to add is that there can be a cascade effect in either direction, right? So we can have a cascade effect toward progress or, um, as I think we're seeing now in many places around the world, rollbacks of reproductive rights. One thing I wanted to add is that Guatemala the Central American country that neighbors El Salvador is currently considering in in the Guatemalan Congress an amendment to the law that would completely criminalize abortion in that country a la El Salvador. So that would be another significant rollback of rights. However, I would add the cases of Poland or the Republic of Ireland uh, for examples of where mass mobilization and collective action can really make a difference in favor of reproductive rights. So I think that there are, I think it's a very complicated issue in terms of addressing not just maternal mortality, but infant mortality. But you're absolutely right that um, the states that are banning abortions are often rate among the highest um, in maternal mortality and infant mortality. And one of the big concerns is that when you don't have access to comprehensive sex education, you don't have access to uh, contraception, and you don't have access to um, quality prenatal care, and you have also uh, diminished or eliminated um, access to abortions for people who seek them. Uh, you have created a environment that contributes to um, the, the high rates of um, maternal and infant mortality. Um, and particularly, again, as we've been talking about, it affects the most marginalized the most. Um, so the very high rates of uh, maternal mortality for black women, for example, in, in Georgia um, that just passed a ban is, is a very stark example. Yeah. When we talk about reproductive rights, it should be all reproductive rights and not just yeah. And, and the reproductive um, justice organizations that are women of color-led organizations have been talking about this for years and all of these connections. And they have been the ones, you know, on the ground in Georgia, for example, pushing back against the ban at the legislative stage will be also, you know, fighting it um, going forward and, you know, drawing these connections about when to become a parent, how to become a parent, uh, what that delivery of, of your um, baby looks like if you decide to become a parent, how to raise your children in a way that um, is free from violence and um, in an environment that um, is supportive of your parenting. And so all of these are, are all interrelated and the reproductive justice organizations are, are, are tremendous in, in, in talking um, about and working on all of those issues. 
if the United States is very serious about about life in all its forms, it it should be putting more resources and having a better healthcare system because one of the problems that that leads to so much misinformation and and the difficulty of women to access healthcare and that also contributes pretty directly to the maternal mortality rate is the fact that the healthcare system is so fractured and that it's so hard to get the kind of information that that women need at all stages of the process and it's you know it's obviously very disheartening to see these laws put in place for a number of reasons but one of them is is the amount of resources that is being spent on something that is not actually making women healthier or safer. I'll add one final thing, which is that, as I said, abortion crimes are a class issue in El Salvador. In this country, a lot of these reproductive rights issues and maternal mortality issues are a race issue. And so um, one of the only candidates that I've seen, Elizabeth Warren, introduced a plan among her many plans. I worry that this got a little bit lost between college um, education and, and other kind of more popular things. But she did introduce a plan thinking about ways to incentivize hospitals to address and reduce black maternal mortality. So that's something that I'll certainly be keeping keeping an eye on and reading more about and hoping that more candidates address as well. All right. Well, thank you all so much. This was really excellent. Thank, thank you. you. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced and edited by Violet Luca. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save.